Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our scripture passage today is Romans 6, uh, verses 14 through Romans 7, verses 12. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. For what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the way of old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if you had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Please be seated. Thank you so much for the reading of the scripture, for the singing of songs, for the extending of fellowship. Again, I am so grateful that you are choosing to join us this morning. It is good to see you. In 1930, a small child's book was printed called The Little Engine That Could. In the tale, a long train must be pulled over a high mountain after its locomotive breaks down. Larger locomotives are asked to pull the train for various reasons, but they refuse. The request is sent to a small engine who agrees to try. 
The engine succeeds in pulling the train over the mountain while repeating the motto, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. The story of the little engine has been told and retold many times. The underlying theme is the same. The engine succeeds in pulling the train while repeating the motto, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Unfortunately, a common theme in many churches is the subtle but real threat of Pelagianism. Pelagianism is an ancient heresy condemned by the early church and should be condemned by the modern church. Pelagius was a British monk in the 4th century, and he disputed with Augustine in the 4th century. And those of us who have been attending church history have been learning about Pelagius and Augustine and the debate that followed and the theology that's represented by Pelagius or Pelagianism. Pelagius denied original sin, and he believed that the human will, untainted by original sin, was able to choose and will its way out of hell and into heaven. His theological underpinnings caused many to conclude that if you are extremely talented and self-disciplined and highly motivated, you may not need grace at all. In other words, Pelagius' concept of divine grace, at least partially, makes the death and resurrection of Christ unnecessary. Pelagius believed that he could. As catastrophic as current events always appear to be, and I wish we could talk about current events and pray for them, and I trust that you are aware of what is happening in your world and you are praying that God would show himself mighty in behalf of those who are suffering and experience loss. But as catastrophic as current events always appear to be, it is even more catastrophic that many in the modern church teach and believe we are all just a little engine that can. Whenever you hear people say, well, all people are basically good, have you ever heard that said? Or if I simply try, I can, you are hearing the ancient heresy of Pelagius. Now, he's an easy target, and I understand that, but a modern rendition of this ancient heresy is Joel Olstein. I trust we've all seen his smiley face. He and many like him teach, if you believe you can achieve. And once God does his part, then you must do your part. This way of thinking tends to elevate rules and regulations in the Christian life. It tends to allow in law adherence as a means of measuring and marking Christian living to checked boxes, task lists, and agendas. Today's study works to bring clarity to this ideology. And rather than saying, I think I can, we teach openly and often, I think you can't. A part of the immeasurable riches of Christ pertains to the New Testament believer's relationship to the Old Testament law. A consequence of the gospel is not just the fulfillment of the Mosaic Code, this is what Jesus did in behalf of his people, but its removal as a principle for living. We are not under the Mosaic Code that runs from Exodus 20 all the way through Leviticus and then is reiterated in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, that's a bold statement, and I trust that this morning, if I don't at least prove it, I will at least get you thinking about it. But in light of how the law is often taught as a binding principle, there are many who would say, well, we are under the law or aspects of the law. I believe the idea of its removal as a guiding principle is truly radical. It's not, I am not the only one suggesting or teaching this, but there are many like myself who do not believe we are under the Mosaic Code. And although many have kind thoughts concerning the law, they think, well, the law is a wonderful thing, and indeed it is. 
it is out of ignorance that such conclusions are drawn. And I've been encouraging us to read our Bibles. If you've been reading your Bible and are in, I would assume, the Old Testament, you would see that the law carries a heavy judgment against those who transgress it. If you are under the Mosaic Code and you pick up sticks on the Sabbath, you are stoned. If you took the the name of the Lord in vain on the Sabbath or just in general, you would be stoned. The law has a horrible curse for the transgressor. And thus, I believe it is out of ignorance that many speak of the law fondly as if they can indeed keep it. Such thinking fails to see oneself as a transgressor of the very law they claim to love and obey without really realizing that all failure has only one outcome toward the transgressor, and that is death. P.P. Bliss is a well-known hymnologist in the early part of this century, and he wrote the hymn, Free from the Law, O Happy Condition, and listen to the lyrical content and theology of this hymn. He wrote, Free from the Law, O Happy Condition, Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and doomed by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once for all. Now we are free, there's no condemnation. Jesus provides a perfect salvation. Come unto me, oh, hear his sweet call. Come and he saves you once for all. Children of God, oh, glorious calling. Surely his grace will keep us from falling. Passing from death to life at his call, blessed salvation once for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O friend, now believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Now, why is this important that we consider this larger topic of the immeasurable riches of Christ and what is now my relationship as a new covenant believer under that Old Testament law? Well, Learning to read scripture correctly only enhances, it only enhances a deeper love for Jesus and his church. When you understand the story, it should deepen your love for Christ and his church. Now, saying the law is not applicable, that I am not under that law, does not mean it is irrelevant or unimportant. And we hope to bring some clarity to this idea. Secondly, why does this matter? Well, understanding our relationship to the law frees us from its curse as transgressors of that law. That's why Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. That means something. And we'll hopefully show you why that is important. And by properly putting the law in its appropriate sequence, which we will see from Galatians, we honor and magnify the life and the death, the burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The law prepares us for this moment. It points us to this moment. We must understand the proper sequence. And when we confuse the law and this gospel, we then seek to maintain, and this is an ancient idea, maintain that while we enter into a state of justice or justification by grace, we then need to continue satisfying God's justice by works. That which I receive by grace is not maintained by works. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I've been encouraging you, if you watch the slides prior to the service itself, I've been encouraging you to pick up the manuscript from the foyer. That manuscript has a lot of resources available in it, and I'm wanting you to study this topic, this idea. And I point out in the manuscript where there are other places that celebrate this idea that we as believers, because of the gospel, are no longer under the Mosaic Code.
Now, one of the values, and I'm taking time during the Sunday morning services to hopefully share with you the word of God and explain to you what I believe and understand it to mean. One of the beauties and strengths of teaching in a series is the opportunity to build on previous studies and to clarify any misunderstandings from the previous week's study. Now, our first study noted how all of humanity falls into one of two categories. You are either in Adam and you are condemned or you are in Christ and you are justified. Amen? We as the people of God, collectively, as a family of families, many of us in here, the majority of us in here are in Christ and we are justified by Christ. That is a huge idea. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior from sin and death, you are in Adam and you are condemned. Now, that's not what you want to hear when you go to church. But we must be clear on this. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are united with him. And that is a glorious truth. And both are entered by birth. One is natural and the other one is supernatural. And you do not and you cannot go from Adam to Christ until you first recognize that you are in Adam. And then last week we celebrated the lavish generosity of God in Christ. As the people of God, we have entered into a forever relationship with the Father by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's for the glory of God alone. As his people, we are right with him. That's the doctrine of justification. We are debt-free before him. That's the idea of ransom or redeemed. And he will never be angry with us again. That's the thought of propitiation. Now, by way of clarification, I wish to note two things. This could be a study in and of itself. And we are trying to be clear on these matters. And I thought, well, I have the floor, so I'm going to use this time. First of all, if you are in Adam, if you are in Adam, you are not right with God. You have a debt before him that you cannot pay, and you are currently under his wrath and will be the recipient of his full wrath at his second coming. And you will be placed in the lake of fire where you will encounter the horror of his absence. We do not say that gleefully. We don't say that with any sense of pride. We say that humbly with broken heart. But everyone who does not know Jesus, that is the outcome of rejecting Christ. But as his people in Christ, although you are right with God and although you are debt-free before him and although God shall never be wrathful toward you or angry with you, this is only because of the sacrificial and substitutionary death of Christ and his physical and actual resurrection and ascension. This does not mean that you deserve any of it or that you can earn any of it. Martin Luther made the statement, simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously sinful yet justified. You could not and you cannot earn God's justification. You cannot earn redemption. You cannot in and of yourself placate the wrath of God. You cannot meet his standard because his standard is perfection. Everything that you have as a believer, you don't deserve. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve to be right. You don't deserve to have full acceptance and accessibility to him or to be debt-free or to avoid his wrath. Every moment of every day and every breath you take sits in rebellion against him and fully deserves all of his judgment and wrath. And even though you and I try hard to obey and follow, we still fail. God's demand and requirement is perfection. 
You are in constant violation of his holiness. And if it were not for Jesus, you, like the rest of humanity, would go to a deserving hell. As a Christian, your works are still like filthy rags. It is his works being worked in you and through you that are righteous rags. But your works generated by Adam, that residue, are still filthy. So please don't think for one minute, I think, or that the Bible teaches you deserve to avoid any of the judgment depicted in the Bible. You deserve all of it. You deserve every ounce of wrath and judgment from God justly poured out against you. But for God the Father, His Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's where I step back and say, thank you, Jesus. I know who I am without Him. I know who I am without Him. And I abhor it. But I also know who he is and I love him. I am a disciple of Jesus by the presence of the Holy Spirit who has been given to me and is working in me and through me the very life of Jesus. And the truth of the cross causes me, it causes me to be humble and creates in me gratitude. The cross activates both private and public devotion. And if somehow this is not clear, pick up the notes. Listen again to the studies and celebrate the immeasurable riches of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing we have because of Jesus. Now, before we jump into the actual study, isn't this fun? Now, before we jump into the actual study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are leaning into you. It is your spirit who calls us to this place today. There is so much opportunity for good and yet an equal opportunity for evil. Even the best of us are still only human. We are either condemned sinners or justified sinners, but we are still sinners. Thus, we openly thank you for the abundance of your provision and forgiving us without our consent. We bask in the lavish generosity of your cross work. We need you. We openly declare that we can't, but only you can and Jesus did. You have placed us in union with your Son so that He is our very life. We can do nothing without Him. You have given us the Holy Spirit. He is pure righteousness. His working is unstoppable. He will do what He wills in us and through us to those around us. Cause us to live public lives of righteousness in a very unrighteous world. Our desire is to read your word plainly, to see how each part of the Old Testament takes us further toward the incarnation of Jesus. Help us to clearly see how the Old Covenant is only read correctly through the lens of the New Covenant. May we see how the one ends where the other begins. May we not be threatened or fearful of living free gospel lives. May we fully concede that Jesus is enough, that the Holy Spirit will not abandon us to our fleshly appetites, and that What you have begun, you will finish. May clarity be achieved so that joy can be tasted. Thank you for the richness of this gathering. Guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the tensions we have in considering this idea is what Paul actually meant when he said law. What law is he referring to? Well, the focus of this study is on the law. And the question is, What is our relationship to that? We as believers are in new covenant. There's a reason why it's called new, because there was an old. We could 
unpack the three areas of the law in our understanding and study of law. We could talk about the ceremonial. We could talk about the civil or moral. We could talk about the three uses of the law as a mirror, as a guardrail, or as a compass. However, time does prohibit us from exploring all that could be said. Our primary intent is for us to see how Jesus fulfills the law, and in fulfilling the law, brings it to its biblical end for New Testament believers. See, God in Jesus, God in Jesus has forever changed our relationship to sin and to the law. If there is ever an occasion to get excited is to realize how transforming and incredible the gospel actually is. In its absence, we have no hope. In its presence, we have joy. It is important to remember how the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, the entire Old Testament is a shadow or type that's pointing to and preparing us for the substance or anti-type who is Jesus. It walks us right into Jesus. Jesus is the B to that A. The entire story, and we often say, and this is what is meant by that, the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of the story is Jesus. In this study, there are six thoughts I want us to consider about our relationship to the law, to that Mosaic Code, stated in Exodus 20 all the way through Leviticus, and then reiterated in Deuteronomy. I've left off chapter 19 of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, uh, that would be a separate study. We have done that in the past. You can look it up online. But my focus is primarily on Exodus 20 all the way through the book of Leviticus and then the reiteration of it in Deuteronomy. And I'm wanting us to understand what is our relationship to that law because of Jesus. God and Jesus has forever changed our relationship to sin and to the law. Let us begin, however, where the law ends. When we read our Bibles, we see that Jesus fulfills the law. I'm going to give you several passages of Scripture. I'll reference them. I'm hoping that some are already familiar to you. But the law played a very distinct role in the purpose of God. It had a beginning, Exodus 20, and it has an ending in Jesus. Christ is the goal the law points to, and when the goal is reached, the law ends. We know that the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. We know this from Luke chapter 24, verses 27, 44, and 45 on the road to Emmaus in the upper room. It says that the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled and Jesus preaches to them himself. I am the goal of the Old Testament. In John chapter 1, verse 45, when Philip found Nathanael, he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. This is Jesus. Everything prior to Jesus is pointing toward Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus arguing with the religious establishment says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, the scriptures, the writings that testify of me. We know that the Old Testament in all of its parts is pointing to Jesus. They are preparing us for Jesus. Now, the law was not opposed to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It simply could not do what it demanded. Paul is emphatic in Romans chapter 3, verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May never be. On the contrary, we established the law. The law did exactly what it was supposed to do. It prepared us for and pointed to Jesus. 
By the way, that's when your Old Testament readings get exciting. When you begin to see Jesus. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What the law could not do, Jesus did. He brings righteousness to all who believe. The law could not do that. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I do not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He is what the law was preparing us for. The law pointed to him. It is clear from the above passages that Jesus fulfills and thus finishes the law. He does for us as Gentiles and for the Jews what neither could do for themselves. He keeps every aspect of the law for his people. We'll see that in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. And the question then we have, if Jesus is indeed the end of the law, he is the one to whom the law pointed and prepared us for, if Jesus does fulfill all of the stipulations of the law, all the conditions of the law, why would I place myself under it? He has done for me what I could have never done for myself. He ends the law by fulfilling what the law's intended design was. Prepare, point. Free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Jesus has bled and there is remission, cursed by that law and doomed by the fall. Grace in Christ has redeemed us once for all. The second thing we see is that the law, and this is the proper understanding of law, the law protected, it protected the tribe of Judah as it brought forward the seed promise. But the law protected, prepared us for, and pointed to the seed promise. So when we read our Old Testament, we are tracing and tracking and marking and measuring movement from Genesis 3.15, where God says, I will bring forward a seed from the woman who will crush the serpent's head. We're tracking that. And the law is a part of that single story. The law protected, prepared us for, and pointed to the seed promise. But the law is not the seed promise. If you look at Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to turn there. You can do what you'd like, but please listen. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 and 23, it reads as such. Why then the law? Well, it was added. It was added because of transgressions. We've read that in Romans 6 and 7. It was added because of transgressions. Until, up until, the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It had a role, it had a purpose. It brought us to, it prepared us for the seed promise. But the law is not the seed promise. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The law has this purpose. And the law, though, is not the seed promise. When you read the Old Testament, you should clearly see that Israel did not keep the law. That's the impression I get. If you're reading the book of Numbers, it's after the, the census ends, right there in chapter 11, the first thing that comes out of the narrative is that they rebelled against God. And that pattern of rebelling against God occurs again and again and again and again. And it says in those passages that the white hot anger of God is going to be poured out upon the people. They are failures. And the entire captivity is showing and revealing how they fail to keep the law. So when you read your Old Testament, you should clearly see that Israel did not keep the law. 
Their sinful inability kept them from obeying the law's reality. However, what the law did do was show them hope, give them hope and redemption through that sacrificial system, but the system itself was temporary. It was all pointing to Christ. If the law, if that Old Testament law running from Exodus 20 all the way through Leviticus, reiterated in Deuteronomy, if the law points to and prepares me for Jesus, why would I go back to the shadow when I have the substance? The Old Testament law is an advertisement. All of us have had the experience where we're driving along the highway and we see a sign. We're hungry and we want to eat. And I see a sign and it gives me several options. And I'm thinking to myself, I want to eat. That sign is a shadow. I am not satisfied until I have that thing parked in front of me and I'm putting it in my rather large pie hole. The Old Testament is that advertisement. The Old Testament says, get off here and be satisfied. But it's simply an advertisement. The substance is Christ. I don't want to be reading the sign. I want to be that little girl that has that meal in front of her and she's eating it. The Old Testament law protected. It prepared us for and it pointed to the seed promise, but it wasn't the seed promise. It was simply a shadow. It was an advertisement. Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. I am now free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Jesus has bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law, doomed by the fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. The third thing we need to note is that although we are no longer obligated to keep the law, I am no longer under the Mosaic Code. We are no longer obligated to keep the law. This does not make the believer lawless. We had an extended passage read from Romans 6, 11, all the way through Romans 7, 12. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, the question is asked, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You'll remember the previous chapter says, Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. We are no longer under the, the reign of sin and death. We're under the reign of grace and life. And so the question is asked, well, if my sinning causes the grace of God to abound, should I continue in sin? Of course not. Who thinks that way? That, that's the response. Then you read verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law? You know what that verse seems to suggest? Is that we're not under the law. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Of course not. Who thinks that way? Now, I know there's a huge argument and debate that takes place somewhere out there that seems to suggest or teach or assume that if you're not under law, then you must be lawless. That not under law is an invitation for licentiousness and lasciviousness. But notice Paul's reasoning in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. The question is asked, are we lawless? The answer that Paul brings is, by no means. The principle is this, just because you are no longer a slave to sin doesn't mean you are without a master. You will either serve sin or you will be serving righteousness. The issue for Paul is simple. To what or to whom are you a slave? There's no such thing as a ronin sinner or saint 
And a ronin is a samurai warrior with no master. All of us have a master. All of us. If you are an unbeliever, your master is sin and death. If you are a believer, your master is life and righteousness. But you have a master. Romans 6, 1 asks the question, should we sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, 15 says, should we sin because we are not under law? Perhaps we might shape the question in the following manner, can we sin since grace abounds? Paul's response to the first and second is an emphatic, no, of course not. His answer to the second is, well, of course you can sin. We can sin as believers. I don't know if that's new to you. But you can sin, and the matter of fact is you do sin. But why would you deliberately continue in sin? Freedom from sin is not freedom to sin. Grace does what the law demands. Grace keeps law. But it is the law of the new covenant, not that of the old covenant. As a born-again Christian, you have the capacity to sin. You still have that. We've noted in our union with Christ, what you once were, you no longer are, but you still have. You are no longer identified as in Adam, but you still have Adam residue. You still have an old nature, and that old nature sins. It's non-redeemable. Thus, as a born-again Christian, you have the capacity to sin. You can still sin. I don't need a hearty amen here. And if I understand the gospel correctly, even when I sin, I am still forgiven. I am still right with God. I am still debt-free, and I am still removed from God's wrath against me. It's still placated. So does this mean I should sin since I can sin? For those of us who know Jesus, such reasoning sounds ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous. Are you telling me that I am no longer under law so I can do whatever I want? I can sin with impunity, I can premeditate all kinds of ungodliness. It's similar to saying, just because I can eat a whole gallon of ice cream, a can of whipped cream, I know some of you have tried, a jar of cherries, a jar of chopped nuts, and a jar of chocolate sauce all in one sitting, that doesn't mean I should. I'd probably give myself an incredible bellyache. Paul would say to those who argue, well, I, should I sin in order that grace might abound? I'm going to do it to the glory of God. He'd say, well, God forbid. Who would think such things? There are a couple of blatant reasons as to why, as a Christian, although I can sin, I will fight against sin. And why? Real quickly. Why am I not going to give myself to sin? Well, one, I am in Christ. I am united with Christ. I'll talk about that in a moment. Secondly, I have the holy, righteous spirit living in me. And then thirdly, sin has an intrinsic demerit in the horizontal that I do not wish to pay. Regardless of how you slice it, the end game of all sin is death. And you say, well, I like sin. I know if sin wasn't likable, you wouldn't do it. But sin is always, always going to cost you more than you want to pay. It's going to take you farther than you want to go. And it's going to keep you longer than you want to stay. So my counsel to you is don't do it. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 will say, don't do it. But if you do, rest in the fact that you have an advocate, but don't do it. Although we are no longer obligated to keep the law, 
This does not make the believer lawless. The liberties of grace are not in the horizontal, but in the vertical. Gospel liberty is never sinful activity. Gospel freedom shows itself in undefined acts of service toward others. The Jesus seed is always producing and causing gospel fruit. Love the Lord thy God, and as a consequence of that, your neighbor as yourself. Grace is no more a license to sin than electricity is a license to electrocute yourself. Don't do it. The law cannot empower what it commands. The accusatory power of the law lies in it being transgressed. And we are functionally transgressors. The gospel does for us what the law could never do. The gospel causes our obedience. It is in Christ we become commandment keepers. Hallelujah! The question is not whether one will have a master, but which master will one have? Free from the law, oh happy condition, Jesus has bled and there is remission, cursed by the law, doomed by the fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. In Christ, the believer has died to the power and authority of the law. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. We could reread the text. I'll simply remind you of what it says. Coming out of chapter 5 and 6, Paul asks the question. Even the law itself says that if you're married and your spouse dies, you're no longer married to your spouse. You are now free to marry someone else. Are, are you hearing the picture? What... Paul says is you've died in Christ to the law so you're no longer married to the law. Who are you married to? Christ. You're married to Christ. Paul will argue that the law is for the unbeliever, not you. And again, we could take time. The manuscript has it. Paul argues vehemently in 1 Timothy 1 verses 5 through 11 that we are not under the law. People teach that we are. We're not. Paul says that the law has a purpose, but it is for the unbeliever or the lawless. What he began in Romans 5.12, we are now in Christ. He continues throughout, throughout chapter 7, picks up in chapter 8, verse 1. You are no longer under the headship of Adam's sin, bondage, and death. You are now under the headship of Christ, righteousness, freedom, and life. Now, for us to think we can be under grace and under law at the same time is adulterous. You cannot, this is part of the text, you cannot have two masters. You cannot have two spouses. And this text, Romans 7, says you have died to that. You are now alive to this. And to believe you are under the law and under grace is to be married with a mistress. God forbid. Our death, burial, and resurrection into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus severs our relationship to the mastery of the law. And because of this, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. We are free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law, doomed by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Our fifth point. In Christ, the believer is no longer under the law, and thus faces no condemnation. When I read Romans chapter 8, verse 1, listen, therefore, there is therefore, in light of what I've just told you, you've died to the law, and you are now married to Christ. And Christ, as the new Israel, the second Adam, fulfills all the commands and conditions and stipulations of that treaty. And because I am in him, that obedience becomes mine. 
And the conclusion that Paul comes to is stated in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. Now in our context of Romans 8, condemnation is a legal term, meaning you are guilty of the crime and you will do the time. You deserve to be condemned because you are a transgressor. But in Christ, in our behalf, he has met the demands of the law and there is therefore now no condemnation. But the larger idea of this condemnation teaches that we have a debt we cannot pay, a gap we cannot span, a vacuum we cannot fill, a shame or guilt we cannot cover, a stain we cannot remove, an alienation we cannot reconcile, and a weight that we cannot lift. These statements are not a catchy tune or phrase, but the unblemished and unblunted truth. In his absence, we would be stoned for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. We would be stoned for taking the name of our Lord in vain. We would be stoned in our rebellion against authority. The earth would open up and swallow us. But because of Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no condemnation for the justified because the law has now been fully met in Christ All of the condemnation of and for the believer happened at the cross. There is no condemnation waiting for us at his second coming. There is a new law in operation. That's what's so amazing. It is the law of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see in chapter 8, verse 2. In Romans chapter 7, verse 6, it says, The new way of the Spirit. The law was unable to justify and to sanctify, yet the inability of the law did not lie in it, but in us. This new law changes our relationship to sin and to the Father. The law could not free us from sin and death because of this. The Father sent, and think about what God did. He sent His Son to condemn sin in the flesh. Because of our sin, God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And let us never forget that. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. He did all of it. We are freed from the law. Oh, happy condition. Jesus hath bled in, there is remission, cursed by the law, doomed by the fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. This brings us to our final point. Woo! In Christ's obedience, this takes us all the way back to the first study. In Christ's obedience, the believer now obeys in the abiding Holy Spirit whom we and you have. The believer now lives. In passages like Romans 6, verses 4 and 5, we have been buried with him, that we too might walk in newness of life. We have become united with him. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Colossians 3, 3 and 4, For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, when Christ who is our life. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5, 6, and 10. He's made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us up with Him. He has seated us with Him. We are His workmanship. This is what spirit living looks like. This is what it is. It is believing what is actually true. The Christian life is the embodiment, is the embodiment of Galatians 5. We are... Christians, we are living and led and filled and walking by the Spirit. The gospel empowers and produces righteousness. 
we must see how the gospel compels us to wash his feet with our tears. It compels us to tell others of all that he has told us. It compels us to give up half of all we own, like Zacchaeus. It compels us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. We become uncomfortable with such radical displays of joy. But that is the lavish generosity of God. When the Christian begins to understand the immeasurable riches of Jesus, it is then they find his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Have you ever wondered how Jesus would say, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and yet our Christian life seem anything but restful? There's a reason why. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for why? My yoke is easy, and my burden, my burden is light. In 1 John 5, I can't read all of it because of time, but verse 3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. We keep his commandments, and he says, And his commandments are not burdensome. Because we are living gospel-filled lives, because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, because we are in Christ, all those commandments that we see as formidable are not burdensome. The Christian life is a celebration of the Christ life lived by the Holy Spirit in the will of the Father through an earthen vessel. That is the glory of this treasure. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. When this is realized and embraced by faith, the Christian life is easy. It is light. It is not burdensome. See, folks, we are free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Jesus hath bled and there is remission. Cursed by that law doomed by the fall, yet Christ has redeemed us once for all. Where do we go from here? Well, let us actively place ourselves in a gospel-saturated way of life. Listen carefully. The law of Moses did have a place in the nation of Israel and indirectly to the New Testament Christian. As Christians, what does the law of Moses say to me, to us? You can't. Only God can, and Jesus did. The New Testament declares that Jesus fulfills the law and as a result abolishes the law of Moses for the New Testament people of God. It is the Spirit of God who now actively works in and through the people of God. It is the Spirit of God who works righteousness through us to those around us. Pick up the study. Listen to it again online. Allow the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to wash over you. The second thing is this. We have worked to make the study accessible. Use the study. There's got to have been something said today that gets you excited. Pick up the manuscript. Look at Pastor Pat's pics. Meditate on it. Act like a cow. Chew it and chew it and chew it and then talk to someone else about it. That's how we are going to be strengthened in faith and increase in number as we push out that gospel, then how does the gospel inform and shape your response? Don't worry about what others might be doing. Look at yourself and bring that idea to the cross. There is so much that can be said, but I will refrain. All the ministry platforms that we have are here to help you be strengthened in faith. Utilize those platforms. See where you might serve. Celebrate 
the gospel. Thankfully, Jesus is the law's answer and sin's defeat. Amen. Live your life from the overflow of his mercy and grace received. Go and love your neighbor. Go and love your spouse, your children, your family. Go and from the overflow of God's immeasurable gift, serve one another. That's why we are here, to celebrate, proclaim, and live out the gospel. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, much has been said. When we consider the gospel, it is overwhelming in a delicious way. It is pulling up to a buffet table filled with solid and nutritious delights. We are and we should be overwhelmed by the immeasurable riches of Jesus. When we think of our own sin, it is first and foremost our indifference to who Jesus is and what he has done and is doing. We think so little of him. Our sin is our ignorance and the ignoring of the Holy Spirit as he works in us and through us to this word. And Father, it is for these sins Christ has died. If Christ is not our intercessor, if he is not our advocate, we would be struck dead like lying and cheating and arrogant Ananias and Sapphira. Father, the earth would open up and swallow us whole like the rebellious sons of Korah. But for Christ. We throw ourselves at the foot of the cross. We bow before this empty tomb and raise our hands in glorious admiration before the throne upon which you sit. And today we celebrate how we are indeed free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus has bled and there is remission. We've been cursed by that law. And we've been doomed by the fall. But Christ, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Now like the paralytic who has been healed, let us go forth leaping and singing and praising the Lord. Until Jesus comes, amen.